Uh, reading today is from Deuteronomy 19, and that's page 197 in your church Bibles. Deuteronomy 19, page 197. Cities of refuge. When the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he is giving you, and when you have driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, then set aside for yourselves three cities in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Determine the distances involved and divide into three parts the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance so that a person who kills someone may flee for refuge to one of these cities. This is the rule concerning anyone who kills a person and flees there for safety. Anyone who kills a neighbour unintentionally, without malice aforethought. For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbour to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbour and kill him. That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him even though he is not deserving of death, since he did it to his neighbour without malice aforethought. <coughs> this is why I command you to set aside for yourselves three cities. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he promised on oath to your ancestors and gives you the whole land he promised them. Because you carefully follow all these laws, I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk always in obedience to him. Then you are to set aside three more cities. Do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance, and so that you will not be guilty of bloodshed. But if out of hate someone lies in wait, assaults and kills a neighbour, and then flees to one of these cities, the killer shall be sent for by the town elders, be brought back from the city and be handed over to the avenger of blood to die. Show no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it may go well with you. Do not move your neighbour's boundary stone set up by your predecessors in the inheritance you receive in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Witnesses. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offence they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in the office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against the fellow Israelite, then do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, 
hand for hand, foot for foot. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Philippa, very much indeed. Um, What should we do with all that, you might be asking? Life for life? Is God telling us to vote to bring back the death penalty? You've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. That's Jesus speaking in Matthew 5. Do we meet a different God in Deuteronomy 19? Well, no and no, these verses aren't designed to get us to go and vote for the death penalty or to make us somehow think that God the Father and God the Son think differently about things. These verses are here to show us the heart of God, to show us what matters to him, and to show us what he cares about for us, so that we then care about those same things, and we would grow to love him more. Let me pray before we get into it. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us see into your heart this morning so that we might see what an amazing God you are. Amen. Well, to help us get our bearings, we've walked into the middle of somebody else's conversation. So God is speaking to Moses, uh, to his Old Testament people, as they stand on the borders of the land that God had promised to take them into for them to make a home. And the headline is that God is telling his people how they should live in that land. So how they should structure life when they get there and set up home. The kind of things they should and shouldn't do to avoid his judgment. The things they should do to become wise. And the way that they should live to enable them to be the best witness they can to the nations around them. Ultimately, what God is doing is telling them what matters to him what he cares about for them, which is good, because we need to know what matters to God just as much as they did. We need to know what God cares about for us just as much as they did, so that we can live in 21st century Banstead, Bahrain, or preferably Barbados, acting as a witness to the goodness of God to the people around us. And so while we're not standing on the borders of the promised lands, needing instruction on how to live in that land when we get there, we still need to hear these words just as much as those original listeners did. So what does God want us to know about what matters to him and what he cares about for us? Well, firstly, God cares about justice for his people. God cares about justice for his people. Take a look down at verse 1 with me. First one of Deuteronomy chapter 19. When the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he has given you, and when you've driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, then set aside for yourselves three cities in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Determine the distances involved and divide into three parts the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, so that a person who kills someone may flee for refuge to one of these cities. So when Israel get into the land, one of their first jobs is to set up three cities spread equidistant across the land 
specifically so that someone who kills someone else can run there and hide. What does that have to do with justice, you might wonder? We'll take a look at verse 4. This is the rule concerning anyone who kills a person and flees there for safety. Anyone who kills a neighbor and unintentionally, without malice, forethought. For instance, a man might go into a forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. So justice is a funny old game. So case in point, you grab your neighbor one Saturday morning, you say, look, put the Excel spreadsheets down for a couple of hours. Let's go blow off the steam, hit the forest, and chop some wood with our brand new axes. You find the perfect tree, you tell your neighbor you want to be the one to make the first hit, you swing your axe back, and, well, you couldn't make it up. The axe head flies off, you swing downwards, and you hear this duff sound as wood hits wood. Weird, you think. You turn around and see your neighbor out cold on the ground, lights out, done for. If it wasn't such a nightmare, it'd be comical, but it is a nightmare, so it's not comical. And in case you're sitting there thinking, well, that kind of thing will never happen, I can tell you I've seen it with my own eyes. Not with an axe, fortunately, but with a bowling ball. So once with the Friday club group, uh, where one guy got a little bit close to another guy just as he was on his backswing and got one in the face. Another time, it was with an aunt of mine, actually, who went into bowl, who swung backwards, and as she did it, the bowling ball flew out of her hand and hit someone square in the face. It is eminently possible, unfortunately. And as you sit there in the forest, it dawns on you that nobody saw it happen. In fact, all that anybody knows is that you knocked on your neighbor's door, you took them out to the forest, and now he has your axe buried in his forehead. Maybe they'll think we had an argument. I just snapped and, you know, maybe they'll think I always hated him and I just looked for a way to bump him off without any witnesses. Whichever way you cut this, it is a disaster. And not just because your neighbor has your axe in his bonds, it's also a disaster because in Old Testament Israel, if someone wrongs your family, Someone else from the family had to step up and make sure justice was done. What to do? Well, the answer is in verse 5. Take a look at verse 5. That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him, even though he's not deserving of death, since he did it to his neighbor without malice aforethought. This is why I command you to set aside for yourselves three cities. So what you do is you peg it straight to one of these three cities that God insisted you set up when you entered the land. Because there you'll find protection from the angry family member who would do you harm before the right legal process has run its course. There you'll find protection from someone shooting first and asking questions later. That's why God insisted these cities be set up in the first place, because God is a God of justice. And so he wanted to make sure that justice had a chance to run its course. Don't think that means God is a soft touch, though, if you take a look at verse 11. But if out of hate someone lies in wait, assaults and kills a neighbor, and then flees to one of these cities, 
the killer shall be sent for by the town elders, be brought back from the city, and be handed over to the avenger of blood to die. Show no pity. So if someone intentionally does wrong, if in fact we did always hate our neighbour and just invited him out to chop wood so we can get rid of him, well, justice will be done here as well. Because while we might run to one of those cities, beg for refuge and hope we get away from it, we won't. An investigation will take place, the truth will out, premeditated murder will be the verdict, and we are out of there. The city leaders will hand us over to the angry family member and we will be toast. What does God want us to know matters to him? That he cares about justice for his people. So verse 10. Do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood. God cares about justice for his people. Justice through protecting the innocent and justice through prosecuting the guilty. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, that's good, it's good that God cares about justice, I mean, it can't really be a bad thing, so it must be a good thing, but what does it mean for me this week? Well, just imagine for a moment if he didn't. So if you go to work this week, someone steals some ideas from you or something and costs you a pay rise or a promotion, imagine if God didn't care. Imagine if you go to school this week and you're bullied for being a Christian. Imagine if God didn't care. Imagine if God's attitude to justice was survival of the fittest. Would you want to be a Christian then? A God who doesn't care about justice is not very much of a God at all. So thank God that he does care about justice. And more than that, that even if today we see injustice all around us, we experience injustice ourselves in all kinds of ways, well, one day he will right those wrongs. They're not forgotten. They haven't been brushed under the carpet. Thank God that he cares about justice. And also thank God that we have a better city to take refuge in than they did. You know, we're not living in a theocracy like Israel, so we don't need to set up legal protections like these cities within the community of God today. That's the government's job, to ensure that a legal justice system is set up appropriately. But every one of us still needs a place of refuge. Not to hide from the revenge of an angry family member who thinks we've wronged them. We need refuge from something much scarier than that. We need refuge from the raw justice of God against our inabilities to keep his laws. We need a place of refuge every bit as much as they did. Well, Jesus is our better city because he provides refuge from a much greater danger. And it's better because he provides refuge not for the innocent. None of us tick that box. He provides refuge for the guilty who run to him for forgiveness. So thank God that he cares about justice for his people so much that he will protect us at all costs, allowing his innocent son to be prosecuted so that guilty sinners like us might go free. Thank God for that. 
But we also need to take this as a warning. If you take a look down at verse 10 and also verse 13, do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land and so that you will not be guilty of bloodshed. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it may go well with you. God cares about justice for his people, and so we need to care about justice too, particularly within our church community, making sure that we do right by our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we're not complicit in any injustice and so that our wonderful church community might thrive. God cares about justice for his people. But secondly, God also cares about purity among his people. He cares about purity among his people. Take a look down at verse 14. Verse 14. Do not move your neighbor's boundary stone set up by your predecessors in the inheritance you receive in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who were in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid. And never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hands, foot for foot. Well, another day, another difficult situation. No axes involved, thankfully, this time. Instead, one neighbor snaffles a bit of land from the house next door, which was a big deal in those days because land was how you made a living. I think the next verse is tied to that issue. And so the neighbors have a falling out. They go before the courts, bringing their mates with them. One of them is telling the truth, and the other is lying. An investigation ensues, and the truth comes out. What's the remedy? Do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. In other words, do to the guilty what they were trying to do to the innocent. Why? Because evil cannot be tolerated within the people of God. Evil needs to be purged, verse 19 says. And as it is purged, as it's judged, as it's dealt with, it will serve as a health warning to the rest of the community of God that he will not tolerate evil. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This is the principle of proportional justice. Let's be clear, this isn't God saying that if we're Old Testament Israelites and you punch me in the face and knock out my teeth, that I should or I must punch you in the face and knock out your teeth. Exodus chapter 21 has that exact example. There's a slave owner, knocks out the teeth of a slave, and the instruction there isn't right up against the wall, slave gets a free hit. No, the slave owner must let the slave go to compensate for the loss of the tooth. That's proportional justice. When someone does wrong, they need to be punished, but the punishment must fit the crime. 
An eye for an eye is not an invitation for retaliation. It's an instruction for a fair outcome. Well, next time you're thinking about moving abroad, which I'm sure will happen more and more as winter draws in, and you're thinking about the kind of country you want to live in, I guess you'll be pretty keen on it having a strong justice system. Because we know that a strong justice system is needed to promote right and deter wrong. Case in point, the newspapers today don't go a day without reminding us that shoplifting in this country now essentially goes unpunished. Prosecution for shoplifting rarely happens. And what's the outcome? Well, surprise, surprise, there's quite a lot of shoplifting goes on. And all the knock-on effects of that, disheartened shop owners, higher prices for everybody else. When wrong isn't punished, it tends to thrive. So Rudy Giuliani realized that when he was mayor of New York. He introduced a policy that was known as the broken windows policy, and it essentially said that lower-level crimes were aggressively going to be policed, the logic being that if they were left unpunished, it generally led to larger crimes being committed. You tolerate one, and you start to tolerate the other. And the result of that, well, major crimes in New York City dropped by about 50%. When wrong is done, you need to punish it to deter more wrong being done. I think we instinctively know that makes sense, regardless of where on the political spectrum you might sit. What about a proportional justice system, though? So where the punishment should fit the crime? How do we feel about that? Well, I guess we might have a bit of a love-hate relationship with it, not because we think it's a bad idea, but because we don't mind getting things out of proportion when it comes to people offending us. So my son George has just started secondary school. It's nervous times for us as a family. So every day he gets home and I say, everything all right? Anyone mean to you? Anything we need to go and deal with at school? And he says, no, don't worry, Dad. Because if someone's mean to me, I'll just punch them in the face. <laughs> now, I do have a bit of sympathy with that, so I have to admit. But is that proportional justice? No, in most cases, that's probably not proportional justice. Just like if someone cuts you up on the A217 and causes you to slam your brakes on. What do you want to do? If you've got an AK-47 on the passenger seat, <laughs> who knows what you would do? Do you see how well God knows us? He knows that we love to take a gun to a knife fight. And he says, no, that's not the way things should work in a strong justice system. Justice, absolutely, but proportional justice, no more and no less. So good laws for a country to have, but maybe not good rules for a church to have. Because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evil person. Someone slaps you on the cheek, well, turn the other cheek too. If someone wants to sue you, take your shirt, well, hand over your coat as well. So Deuteronomy chapter 19 mandates proportional justice. Matthew chapter 5 mandates we give up our right to proportional justice. What's going on? And more importantly, how does it all relate to God caring about purity among his people? 
Well, here's what we've got to remember. In Old Testament times, God's people Israel was a theocracy. So a nation living under God's rule, where the government was supposed to rule on God's behalf. And so naturally, the rules of that nation were supposed to reflect God's character. And those laws included having a proportional justice system where wrong was punished as a deterrent to the impurity amongst the people, but the punishment must fit the crime. That reflected God's character, because our God's a God of holiness, purity, and justice. Fast forward to New Testament times, and Jesus arrives. Not to abolish the Old Testament legal process, which applied in the nation of Israel, but to limit it to the Old Testament legal process, which applied in the nation of Israel. So in other words, Jesus says that principles like life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, there were good laws to apply in the nation of Israel, just like proportional justice is a good rule of law for any other nation today. But, and this is the key, these principles were not designed to be applied to personal relationships within the New Testament church. Because the New Testament church isn't a single nation with a government. It is separate and distinct from whichever government happens to rule in whichever country we happen to be in at the time. I mean, the church is subject to the law of the land, of course, assuming the law doesn't contradict what Jesus tells us to do and not do. But because the New Testament church isn't a single nation with a government, the church doesn't need its own legal system like Israel did. So these verses declare from the rooftops that God cares about purity among his people, but standing where we stand today, the other side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus from where those first listeners stood, purity among the church isn't won by proportional justice being applied within our personal relationships as followers of Jesus. So how is purity in the church won in 21st century Banstead? Well, firstly, take a step back and remember that purity in the church has already been won in 21st century Banstead because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus took our sin upon himself and exchanged it for his righteousness, well, now in God's eyes, we are pure. We are righteous. He looks at us as Christians and sees the righteousness, the purity of Jesus. So if you're a Christian here this morning, trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus to declare justice for your sin and clothe you in his righteousness, you are pure this morning. Purity in the church has on one level already been won, so praise the Lord for that. But secondly, as Christians, we need to think seriously about how our hard-won purity, which God cares so much about, is reflected in our day-to-day -day lives. We need to think about it individually. So as we structure our lifestyles to make sure that we're doing all that we can to reflect God's purity in holiness, in what we say and we think and do. Not so we despair about how poorly we match up to Jesus, but so that we can be honest with God 
and say, look, we're going to need the help of your spirit here to get this right. And so that we can be honest with each other, because I need your help and you need mine with stuff like this. We need to think about it individually. We also need to think about it relationally. Not seeking to apply Old Testament Israel legal system rules of proportional justice to our New Testament personal relationships within the church. Instead, we should be looking for ways to apply grace in those tricky situations we find ourselves in, reflecting the grace shown to us by the Lord Jesus himself. So we need to think about it relationally. And we need to think about it corporately. Now, we probably don't like the idea of church discipline very much, particularly if it's discipline aimed at us. But our leaders have a responsibility to exercise it, not just on behalf of the God whose children they are shepherding, but also on behalf of the church itself, who benefit where discipline reigns and suffer where injustice reigns. You know what it's like with your children. You don't really want to discipline them because you love them and you don't want them to be angry with you. But you do it because you love them and because you know that they and wider society will benefit if they're carefully nurtured even and disciplined as they grow up. And while I'm not saying that church leaders are the adults and we're the kids, I am saying that God has lovingly given us church leaders to shepherd us under Jesus. And so if those church leaders are willing to exercise their God-given role of church discipline to help us reflect the purity of God, well, we should be really thankful for that. Let's be in no doubt. God cares passionately about justice for his people. He cares passionately about purity among his people. That hasn't changed from when these words were first written and heard by Old Testament Israel. What has changed is that he sent his one and only son to guarantee us justice and purity through his cleansing blood. That is seeing into the very heart of God. And I hope it helps us see what a wonderful God we have. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a wonderful God who cares about justice and purity. And not just that you care about it, but that you acted so that justice might be guaranteed for us, purity might be granted to us, all through the saving death of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for showing us your heart this morning in your word. Amen.